to Shake It and Disturb. As always, I'm Darren Carp, Daddy Cat, here with Johnny Boy Mama Bear Thrashini, who is another year older, another trip around the mm. sun. When we recorded this, you had a birthday. Happy belated birthday to you, John. How was it? Was it a, what is it, a, a screamer? Um, was it a gas? It was a gas, but I kind of want to wait till next week to tell you all the details because mm. I'm picking up a... Uh, special gift for myself and i want to tell the listeners next week if you don't mind fine that being said i'm gonna pop one open it's a it's and a it's diet a dyke yeah it's a dyke this one everyone knows a dyke you weren't supposed yeah, to wait, give wait, that wait. away we're popping bottles over here drinking smart water yeah but you know what these yeah. are the perks that we get by being podcasters that we get to drink whatever we want absolutely john and they get perks for being listeners don't they that's right everybody last week in our patreon live stream we announced that there are new patreon perks coming february 1st which is very exciting and this is good for me not great for john but this includes video um so that just means our recordings instead of taking two hours are going to take four hours because john's going to be like no i filmed that on my bad side again No, no really i mean literally right before we started i was like my hair Right now is such a is mess. Something else. And something I'm, else. I'm just gonna have to get used to that. Or I might I might start wearing hats more often during recordings because I just can't What's be fine, bothered. This is the last episode where you're not gonna see us, Jones. Right. This is the last anonymous video. Maybe we've been catfishing them the entire time. Yeah, that's right. But next week you'll be able to watch our video recordings of the show right on Patreon. That's right. And of course, I'm gonna go ahead and click record on this just to be super safe. Just to Please. be safe. Um, by the way, you can now sign up, you know, we had different tiers when we kicked off the show two years ago. And by the way, we're coming up on our birthday. We should talk about that on next week's episode. Um, but you know, we had to adjust our Patreon levels and tiers to things that more adequately fit the show. So now you can sign up in four different tiers ranging from five bucks all the way up to 20, which a lot of people love to pay and help support the show that way. But, um, you can be a friend. A best yep. friend, uh, uh, a radish, a radish, or and if you're feeling really sussy, oh, hold on, oh, thank you, a sussy radish. That's ow, right. Ow, ow, ow. And there's lots of cool stuff in each of these. We've added new things to pretty much each one of these things. And as Darren mentioned, video is the big one. We're really pumped about it. Yes, the link in our show notes or patreon.com slash shaken and disturbed. You're going to get a whole lot more this year because we finally got our fucking act together. Shall we get into this week's case, John? Mainly me. Yes, let's yeah. do it. Um, all right. All right. So in June of 1998 in New York City, a missing persons report. Love that place. Isn't that a fun place? That's my uh, connection. That's your connection to the case. A missing persons report was submitted for a wealthy 82-year-old woman named Irene Silverman. Irene was the owner of a large mansion in Manhattan, which is really hard to say, large mansion in Manhattan, which she had divided up into apartments and rented out while serving as a landlord. In the weeks leading up to her disappearance, Irene had run into several issues with a mysterious new tenant who called himself Manny. Manny. Yeah. As it turned out, Manny had used false references on his tenant application And Irene suspected that there was shady activity sort of going on inside of his apartment. Um, On the morning that she went missing, a maid said that Irene had finally decided to confront Manny, Manny, excuse me, 
Shortly after, she heard Irene loudly arguing with him in his apartment. Mm. And listen, if you've ever lived in New York City, you've that's part for this the is very this is another Tuesday. The landlord, the super, whomever it might be, screaming, anyone, yeah, screaming, yeah, anyone screaming generally happens uh, in New yeah. York City. Yeah. Well, hours went by and nobody in the building had any idea where Irene had gone. The police were called to the building to help find the missing landlady, but little did they know that this case would end up being much larger than a single disappearance and one and would unearth a mountain of heinous crimes, including robberies, fraud, even slavery and murder. Yeah, at the heart of these crimes was a mother-son duo who had traveled the world grifting and conning people as they went, and their names were Sante and Kenny Kimes. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Um, Sante Louise Singers was born on July 24th, 1934, the third of four children born to Oklahoma native Mary Singer and her husband who had immigrated from East India, Rattan. In the late 30s, the family moved to Southern California and shortly after, Rattan abandoned the family, never contacting them again. This is like, by the way, a setup for like disaster, like all these horrible oh, yeah, things, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. You mean moving to Southern California? Well, that. There, there's yeah, that. okay. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure we were on the same page. Yeah. Well, nothing against yeah. Southern California. You know, people move there all the time, and I don't know. That's what they say. That's what they say. That's what all they right. say. All right. Moving right along. All right. Desperate yeah. to protect and support her four children, Sante's mother turned to sex work to make ends meet. This led to her getting kind of swept up in a dangerous crowd and resulted in her four children being removed by child services and separated into various orphanages mm -hmm. and foster homes. And Sante was the last of her siblings to be taken away from their mother. This might be a stupid question, and I plead complete ignorance. I hear of, like, foster homes all the time. Are orphanages still a thing? I don't know. I feel like it's something that was made, like mainstream well by annie the 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 broadway show but like yeah do they did they even call them that in the late 90s right. you know i don't know or, or, or now yeah are they a thing like i just never hear like and maybe like church groups have them you know like a lot of like nuns and stuff like that they probably do exist yeah. this probably is a simple google search yeah, let it me just look reminded it me of like I don't even hear about orphanages ne necessarily. It's more like foster care system or something yeah. like that. Well, um, let me tell you, I just looked it up briefly here yeah. on AmericanAdoptions.com. It says, since uh, da, 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 the U.S. orphanages have gone extinct entirely, in their place are some modern boarding schools, residential mm. treatment centers, and group homes, though foster care remains the most common form of support for children who are waiting for adoption or reunification with their families. So I guess okay. kind of you're right. Yeah, They're out, They are out of... Yeah. Uh, They're extinct. You know, yeah. Popularity. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, she spent a significant portion of her childhood and teenage years on the streets of Los Angeles where she became a regular at several popular establishments. Two of her favorite hangout spots were a soda shop, just goes to show, I love a soda shop. Cheers and to a Diet movie Coke. Theater. Yeah. Cheers to Diet Coke. And a movie theater in Melrose Avenue, which were both owned by the same couple, Edwin and Mary Chambers. Now, Ed and Mary were very familiar with Sante, or Sandy, as they knew okay. her. And she was such a consistent customer that they'd often let her into movies for free or give her freebies at the soda shop. The two deeply desired children, but were unable to conceive. So I'm sure that she they kind of projected their own yeah. parental, you know, 
dreams onto uh, Sante or Sandy. Yeah. Now, when they found out that Sante had been removed from her mother's custody, they decided to adopt the troubled teen in hopes of finally giving her a stable and normal mm. life. While her quality of living undoubtedly improved after the adoption, that did not stop Sante from misbehaving and committing petty crimes. She was caught several times shoplifting, and in one instance, she even went on a shopping spree Uh-oh. funded by a credit card she stole from Ed. Sounds like little... Home Alone 2 to me, lost in New York, <laughs> it, you know. It does. It sounds a little, um. It ju- it, it's kind of like the nature-nurture thing, where I think this yeah. kind of goes to show that both play a part. Now, yeah, petty absolutely. crimes aside, oh. yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, these are very conditional circumstances, you know, like even though, you know, you're a teenager and you're having maybe a more stable home life, you probably remember the things you were able to get away with and able, you know, what consequences come with what actions. And honestly, a lot of it is survival instinct for people at that age. So, you know, it's somewhat secondhand nature. Absolutely. You know, petty crimes aside, though, Sante appeared to be fairly average teenager. At school, she was popular amongst her peers. Mm. She had a carefree spirit and good looks drew the attention of lots of boys in her class. And shortly after graduating, Sante had a short-lived marriage with one of her high school sweethearts, Lee Powers. Their marriage only lasted three months. So mm. she's like the Kim Kardashian of like, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. era. Yeah, yeah. Now, fa- Following her divorce, Sante enrolled in the Reno Business School for a six-week secretarial course, after which she moved to Northern California with her friend Ruth Tannis. And according to Ruth, the pair spent the next two years having wild adventures, partying, and exploring Sacramento and San Francisco, which is called your 20s. I mean, yeah. that's your 20s. Especially if you're enrolled, you know, even in a business school or whatever. I mean, to me, it sounds like she's trying to make a life for herself. I mean, you know, it would be very easy to just you know, forgo any kind of higher education and just, you know, live a life of sex work or whatever else that could come your way. But instead, you know, she's trying to make a life for herself here. But, you know, the partying continues is what we've come to understand. Well, in 1956, Sante returned to Southern California to marry another one of her high school boyfriends, this guy, this time Edward Walker, who fathered Sante's first son, Kent. Much like her first marriage, her union with Ed was also short-lived. In 1961, Ed reported his wife to the police for shoplifting and theft, and Sante was arrested and charged with the crime. Ed's disloyalty brought an end to the already unhappy marriage, and Sante returned to fending for herself on the streets. Over the next few years, Sante was charged for more small-time crimes, such as auto theft and grand theft, earning her a lengthy rap sheet. And this time she supported herself as a sex worker, which also resulted in several prostitution charges. That was what they were called at the time. After turning 18, Sante distanced herself from her. And by the way, this is all before she's even 18. I mean, this is a lot of heavy life to be living, you know, for an 18-year-old. Another reason why they really need to, like, scrap this whole sex work. Yeah, right. That's an abomination. Let's arrest sex workers. Because while, A, it's a legitimate profession, and, B, the people, some of the people, because not all of them, uh, but some of the people that feel like they have to do it in order to survive for their family, what you're doing is just making them be a criminal. Right, right. uh, And you're making it worse for them. There really is no, like, rehabilitation or trying to help them in any sort of way. You're just punishing them for really maybe the only option, the best option that they have. Yeah. Exactly. Not everybody who does that is. I'm not saying that 
Yeah. Every sex worker only needs it to survive. Some people, like I said, it's a legitimate profession, but it just is like, it's just terrible. You're just making it worse for, yeah. frankly, young, younger, poor women. Yeah, it's true. And then, like I said, after turning 18, Sante distanced herself from her adoptive parents and didn't even care to attend Mary's funeral when she passed away from cancer in 1969. Mm. It was around this time that Sante met her third husband, this time Kenneth Kimes. Ken was born, uh, excuse me, Ken was worth approximately $10 million and had made his fortune by buying up property and building motels. Sante had seen Ken's name and picture in a magazine article about young millionaires and her sights were set, basically. Much like Sante, Ken was a grifter who loved the adrenaline rush that came from stealing and scamming desperate, uh, despite him already being uh, incredibly wealthy. He had been married once previously, but the marriage ended terribly due to his repeated infidelity and extremely controlling nature towards his first wife. And this is also another example of sometimes when people are like, there's no worries when you have money. Like, while money does help a lot of people, like, I think yeah. money is is a good thing to have, I think, on average. Some people still want the rush of mm-hmm. the, you know, the stealing the, the steal. and the getting yeah. away with it type of thing. Totally. You know, it's like... It's part of human condition. It's not necessarily just like people who have money are yeah. therefore good or whatever. You know? you know, and each one of those cons added up, right? So like he could have settled with $1 million, but he did it multiple times and got to 10. Right. So there's a thrill to building mm-hmm. that reputation in a sense as well. <laughs> well, Sante and Ken hit it off instantly and dan- and the dangerous power couple was formed. Sante had finally met her equal, and Ken had substantial funds to support his indigent new wife. Okay, so things are things are really going off well between the two of these two. Yes, indigent means like poor and needy gotcha. kind of thing. Uh, now, according to Ken's family and friends, he was badly in love with Sante, who had him eating out of the palm of her hand. And I kind of imagine that's good for both of them. They sort of get to like yeah. be themselves. Sante wanted her life probably funded in this way and she gets the security and then they both kind of can be bad together. Yeah. Sante knew exactly how to use her sexuality and Ken's feelings for her to manipulate him into giving her whatever it was that she wanted. Ken was also a severe alcoholic and Sante used his addiction addiction to her advantage to control him. Sante and Ken loved scheming and lying just for the thrill of it. Sounds like they met their match here. Honestly, now, it sounds one, like us. Keep going. It does. Yeah. It does. One antic even got them into an extremely elusive and private dinner at the White House during the Ford administration. Oh, I think I've heard about that. Yeah, okay. I just remember in the Real Housewives of uh, Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. how they had the Salahis who like got in. Yep, so yep, yep. a little like that. Uh, during the Ford administration, as well as a private meeting with Patricia Nixon, during which the pair attempted to gain government funding for one of their oh schemes. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I mean... You know, it just goes to show that a lot of people don't ask about some stuff. Like (laughs) you can get away with a lot of stuff because you're just if you're confident and you dress well. It's like this is like the George Santos theory of like he's getting away with a lot of it because he like kind of dresses okay. Yeah, right. uh, Which is just crazy. But anyway, Mrs. Nixon, thank God, saw through the facade, but not before Sante was able to whip out a camera and sneak a picture of Ken and Patricia to document the meeting. And in 1975, Sante gave birth gave birth to her second son, Kenneth Jr. And the small family lived in a lavish life of luxury as they bounced between their several different homes in Vegas, California, Hawaii, and the Bahamas. Doesn't sound bad to me. to me. Yeah, let, let's. What can we nice get into, Darren? The two of us. I don't know. 
However, you know that saying of like, no matter where you are, there you are. Yeah. Like, no matter where they went, trouble did seem to follow. And Ken Jr. recalls some of his earliest memories as times where authorities were visiting the family and investigating Sante and Ken Sr.'s numerous schemes. Mm-hmm. Sante would frequently commit insurance fraud by claiming that items had been robbed from their house in order to make a claim and get money. That seems really hard to do. Like, I don't know. I guess back in the day, when is this? The 70s, six, around that time? You know, maybe yeah, they, 70s. you know, maybe it's a little easier to get away with things than like, you know, the age of cell phones and data tracking and cameras on every corner. I don't know. Seems tough. but Well, is that like Murdoch guy, I think in South Carolina, who like who killed his wife and children? And then like he was running a bunch of insurance fraud on that. I think it's like it's probably mm-hmm. easier to do than we think, but hard to get away with it right. now that there's just so many records of things. Right. It's just hard exactly. to say back in the 70s. Yeah. But it was also alarming to see how many of the real estate properties owned by the Kimeses would mysteriously burn down or get damaged, resulting in even more insurance yeah. money. And by the time Ken Jr. was 11 years old, his mother was spending time in federal prison. Oh, wonderful. Gener- just generational trauma here yeah. happening. Well, in 1986, Sante and Ken were arrested on charges stemming from their hiring numerous homeless youth and undocumented immigrants from Mexico. Their workers were held hostage and forced to work up to 20 hours a day without any pay. Mm. Both current and past employees, if that's what you want to call them, told stories of the abuse they endured were uh, working for the Kimes. They were beaten, locked in closets overnight, burned with boiling water, and threatened at gunpoint. Very horrific stuff here. Several victims took to the stand during the trial, all with horrible stories, and some even bearing physical scars from the ordeal. I bet. And the fact that these people were homeless, too, it's just like, they just knew how to manipulate and take advantage of, you know, when I say weak, just people who probably very vulnerable. Vulnerable, is what I mean. yeah, yeah. Sante was sentenced to five years in federal uh, prison, which she jokingly called "club fed," but was released only after after only serving three years of that sentence. Ken managed to cut a deal with the FBI shortly before the trial. He agreed to plead guilty in exchange for a three-year suspended sentence, a seventy thousand dollar fee, and court-mandated rehab for his alcoholism. Mm. Sante had a rather unusual relationship with her son, Ken Jr. I keep wanting to say, say Ken Griffey Jr., like just seeing it written out, you know. And well, thinking, you're such a jock, you know. Like I'm you just so think masked. sports. You just love sports. I'm such a, like, jock, a ESPN type of guy. It's just like you can't not think about I that. I know. I'm just, I love the sports. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, from a very young age, she began encouraging him and even teaching him how to steal and shoplift, sometimes pointing to items in a shop that she wanted and explaining to him how to successfully steal it without getting noticed. So speaking of, to your point, generational trauma, she's passing down her own, yeah. uh, you know, situation. Survival skills, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Well, she tended to um, smother him with her attention and affection, which didn't sort of abate as he grew older. In his teenage years, Ken Jr. began showing severe behavioral issues and even violent tendencies. Sure. Yeah, he was even, I'm sorry, he was very angry with his mother after her release from jail, an anger which began manifesting in dangerous ways. A close friend of Ken Jr.'s from high school told the New York Times that she recalls several occasions where Ken Jr. described getting into physical altercations with his mother, often showing up to school with bruises and cuts. Oh, God. Although their relationship was turbulent, this did not stop Sante from smothering her son with constant attention and affection. 
this is like a codependency yes. psychological yes. like you're gonna need me and then i can manipulate you to you know do what yes. you want a little bit like she's doing with kenneth kimes as well with his alcoholism so, so this true. is all manifesting poorly so true when ken jr went off to college at uh university of california santa barbara which by the way great for him to make that happen given his yeah. circumstances she convinced her husband to buy a house just outside of campus so the family could live together still oh lord well throughout ken jr's college career she'd routinely throw massive keg parties where she mingled with the student guests as if she were one of them so very uncomfortable Feels like a little arrested development too you know like yeah. there's a need yeah. there and just and i'm not blaming her it just seems like that's kind of where we're going in 1994, Ken Jr. went to Hawaii with a group of friends on spring break. And while he was away on vacation, his father, Ken Sr., unexpectedly passed away from a heart attack. He was 77 years old, so perhaps nothing sussy had happened there. <laughs> I'm not going to, not going to, you know, 77 is young, it's, but not necessarily by those standards. Yeah, yeah. Like back then. Yep. Ken reportedly passed while sitting in the car waiting as Sante went into the bank. Sante did not inform any of Ken's family or friends, including their son, of her husband's death. Now that is sussy, when, if there was ever that a sussy is bad. detail. Yeah, right. And when Ken Jr. arrived back at home, he was met at the airport by his mother. He excitedly asked, you know, where's Papa? Well, he's right here, she said, as she took out an urn <sighs> filled with Ken Sr.'s ashes from her bag. That is like uh, psychological torture. Like, this this just doesn't seem right. Ken God. Jr. obviously was devastated <clears throat> at the news of his father's passing. However, his grief could not did not stop Sante from immediately forcing him back on a plane to Hawaii to spread Ken Sr.'s ashes hmm. in the ocean. Now, they had a house in Hawaii. Unclear why she would just... Yeah. ...do that. Uh, there's something odd well, with her think... husband out of the picture... Sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to say, like, wouldn't you think it would make sense to, like, contact your son while he's there and then you go and meet him there? Like, why wait for him to come home and then surprise him in the airport with an urn? Are you kidding me? I have a feeling she wasn't thinking about her son well, at that's all true. in this. Yeah. And with her husband out of the picture, Sante and Ken Jr.'s unsettlingly close relationship would only progress and become more dangerous as she began teaching her son the ways of grifting. And because Ken Sr. had passed away so unexpectedly, his will had not been updated and still stated his wife and children from his Ooh. previous marriage as his beneficiaries. Yikes. So naturally, Sante petitioned the court to have the will altered, but was unsuccessful. However, the will only pertained to the portion of Ken's money that was documented and known to the IRS. Remember, he That's was kind true. of stealing stuff, too. Yeah. Sante knew that Ken Sr. had several overseas bank accounts where he would stash money to avoid paying taxes. This is common. Very common. She, she began forging checks to take out money from his accounts in the Bahamas and Cayman Islands. Uh, a, 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 I can never say this. Bahamian? A Bahamian banker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Banam I always want to say Banamanian. <laughs> uh, a Bahamian banker named Saeed Bilal Ahmed grew suspicious of the checks and scheduled a meeting mm -hmm. with Sante. Now, Saeed was never seen again after that scheduled meeting. And while nobody was ever uncovered, <laughs> Bahamian authorities are convinced that he was murdered by Sante and Ken Jr. for getting too close to their operation. Yeah. And also, like, if I'm... Uh, but not... It's not conclusive. That's just yeah. the... That's the sussiness around this. And I would say, like, if you're such an amazing con woman and grifter, like, wouldn't you have thought about the Will situation? Like, not to kind of give any kind of credit there, but I don't know. 
Yeah, I'm not sure she's necessarily thinking ahead so much. No. It's just like kind of spur of the moment, but yeah. Right. Well, in 1996, another man named David Kazin found himself a little too close to the fire. David was a 62-year-old socialite who had been a long-term friend of Ken Sr. When Sante and Ken Sr. had purchased their house in Las Vegas, he had agreed to co-sign to help them out. So years later, in 1998, Sante took advantage of this favor by forging his name on a loan for $280,000. When David became aware of the forgery, he was livid and sent out to uh, confront Sante, a decision which ultimately cost him his life. I do kind of wonder, just before we continue, Mm -hmm. sorry to interrupt, but I wonder if Sante kind of knew she needed a man to maybe help her, someone Mm. that needed her, and a guy that could maybe physically overcome some of these other guys that she was trying to do that, and so her son was the best bet. I don't know, but there was a power dynamic between men and women, so perhaps that played into this. Maybe even a trust thing, you know, just generally in in the gender dispositions there. But Sante ordered her son to kill David by shooting him in the back of the head. His body was later found hidden in a dumpster near the Los Angeles airport. Jesus. Once again, Sante was able to get exactly what she wanted, and now she had her son to help her with the dirty work. All throughout the country, Sante and Ken Jr.'s names were coming up in investigations, so they took to, to using aliases to better hide themselves and to confuse authorities who were trying to basically track them down. I also want to take a second to say here, like I'm feeling a little bit of empathy and sympathy, I guess, for uh, Ken Jr. But he's going about doing a lot of this stuff with her. He's he's making, but it is, yeah. but it's psychological manipulation since yeah. he was a kid. So you know, yes, he is. But like, it's like when people are brainwashed and they're kidnapped, oh, for and sure, then like, yeah. like a little bit of like Elizabeth Smart, like mm-hmm. when she was kidnapped, and then like she was she out in public to. with them. She could have, you know, she could have gone. Well, she could have ran. But it's like. The brainwashing aspect of it, like, are you yourself? Do you have autonomy? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, by June 1980, sorry, 1998, Sante and Ken set their sights on another potential cash grab, 82-year-old millionaire Irene Silverman. Irene was the widow of incredibly wealthy real estate tycoon Sam Silverman when an apartment an apartment when an apartment in her Manhattan property opened up, she began taking, uh, taking applications. One of which caught her eye. It was Manny Guerin. Now Manny's references were exceptional and even included the name of a longtime personal friend of Irene's. He was also able to offer her $6,000 in cash, which certainly Hmm. sweetened the deal. Landlords love that. And Irene thought Manny would be the ideal tenant to fill the space. That was until his mysterious assistant, using air quotes here, showed up, Mm -hmm. an older woman who was crass and honestly rude. She insisted on living with Manny, Mm -hmm. which Irene did not argue. Little did she know that Manny and his assistant were, in fact, Ken Uh Jr. and Sante Kimes, and they were cooking up up a devious scam to rob her of everything she had. Now, Sante's plan seemed simple. Ken Jr. would break into the apartment, murder Irene, and hide her body. Simple. 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 The two would then begin taking the money as she was receiving from tenants. Now, after months of not receiving her new tenants' rent payments, Irene was becoming more and more irate with Manny. On the day of her disappearance, she went to his apartment to confront him about the overdue rent, which is how we started this episode. Housekeepers said they heard a loud argument coming from within the apartment, and when Irene failed to return by the evening, authorities were called. Unfortunately, it was already too late for Irene. Ken Jr. had strangled her to death by this time. 
and Sante and Ken then stuffed her body into a suitcase and loaded it in the trunk of a car. Mm. And here's also a weird thing. Yeah. Odd. The two then celebrated with coffee and pastries from the infamous Trump Tower before driving to Hoboken, New Jersey to dump Irene's body in a dumpster. This is so disturbing because I know where all these places are, so I'm just like, ugh. Just, and also just like the callousness yeah, of all of it. Yeah. Now, Sante thought the plan had sort of gone off without a hitch. It almost seems like a perfect plan, right. unaware of the fact that authorities had been closing in on her and her son for months. The FBI was looking for Sante in regards to David Kazan's murder when her friend and fellow criminal Stan Patterson unknowingly tipped them off to her whereabouts. Yeah. So after dumping Irene's body, Sante called Stan, someone who she had gone to for years for illegal guns and various other odd jobs that she needed for her schemes. Unbeknownst to her, the FBI was listening in on the call, and they immediately found Stan and brought him in for questioning. The FBI used Stan's own criminal activity as leverage to encourage him to lead them to Sante, offering to not charge him with selling illegal firearms if he agreed to cooperate. Stan agreed to help them and made a plan to meet up with Sante and Ken Jr. in New York City. Stan arrived at the meeting point wearing a bulletproof you know, vest or something, and within moments of Sante's arrival, authorities had the group completely surrounded. Ken Jr. was so frightened that he actually wet himself, mm. but Sante maintained her cool. She refused to give authorities her real name and loudly proclaimed her innocence as she was dragged away. Sante and Ken Jr. were taken into custody for questioning about the murder of David Kazan, but investigators would soon unearth an, a mount, mountain of evidence Excuse me, in the stolen car they drove to the meeting. As Irene's body had not been discovered and her whereabouts were still unknown, she had been declared a missing person. Inside the vehicle was Irene's passport, keys to her mansion, and numerous sheets of paper where Irene's signature was seemingly being practiced over and over again. Hmm. This is definitely something I feel like grifters, especially at that era, at that in that decade, had to learn how to do, you know? Like totally. If you wanted well, you to, gotta be a good forger. Yeah. You know, yeah. <clears throat> and along with Irene's belongings and the forged signatures, authorities uh, found a loaded handgun, dozens of plank uh, social security cards, fake licenses, and syringes. The evidence found in the car was enough to finally bring Sante's lifelong crime spree to an end, which I would hope after all of that evidence was enough to make it happen. Well, Sante and Kenny were first brought to trial for the murder of Irene Silverman in 2000. Now, although her body was never uncovered, Ken Jr. had confessed to the murder and told authorities that her body had been dumped in a construction site in New Jersey. This is kind of reminding me a little bit of the... Have you been paying attention to the Cohasset murder right now? No. The, the, um, of Anna Walsh and mm. her husband who was like on house arrest or stealing fake Warhols. She's been missing for a while and it turns out, well, he hasn't been convicted yet, but this yeah. is obviously in the media the that he had killed her, like dismembered her and thrown her in a number of different dumpsters that he sort of knew that day were being taken to go be incinerated. So uh. he kind of knew the garbage schedule, but on his computer were things like how long does DNA last for? Oh like, can God. you find, you know, like how do you get rid of a, the body smell, like stuff like that, well, that seemed super incriminating. That isn't necessarily proof, but it doesn't look good. Listen, it's not going to look good when you look up the search history on these computers I have here because working in true, true crime, I've literally probably looked DNA things up. So just want everyone to know I'm, I'm yeah. guilty until proven or innocent until proven guilty. Nope, you're, you got it right the first time. <laughs> wow. Now, however, 
Being in custody did not mean the madness was at an end. Uh, we told you this was a little bit of a crazy story. Yeah. While in court, Sante was caught trying to pass notes to the New York <laughs> to a New York Times reporter, which resulted in the judge threatening to have her handcuffed during all further legal proceedings and her phone call privileges limited to only calls from her lawyers. Yeah. During her sentencing, she gave a grand speech proclaiming her innocence and comparing her trial to the likes of the Salem witch trial. Not oh really boy. the same. Oh, boy. Now, Sante was sentenced to a total of 120 years in prison. In an interview for Court TV in October of 2000, Ken Jr. held the interviewer hostage with a ballpoint pen, <sighs> demanding that his mother not be extradited to California for the death of David Kazin and that neither of them face the death penalty. Yeah, that'll do it. Hold hold up somebody hostage on Court TV, of all places. Yeah, uh, uh, the situation was de-escalated by negotiators who were able to distract Ken Jr., wrestle him to the ground, and free his hostage, thank God. Yeah. Ken Jr. was also sentenced to 120 years in prison. Now, four years later, 2004, mother and son were extradited to Los Angeles where they stood trial for the murder of David Kazan. As part of a plea deal, Ken Jr. changed his plea to guilty in exchange for Sante not facing the death penalty. Wow. Ever the Ever the dutiful son. Yeah, really. Both Sante and Ken Jr. were given one additional life sentence for David's murder. Sante Kimes was held in Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for for women as she served her sentence until her passing in May of 2014. Now, throughout her sentence, she never once confessed to any of the crimes and maintained her innocence the entire time. Mm -hmm. Ken Jr., however, has confessed to the murders of David Kazin, Saeed Ahmed, and Irene Silverman. He currently resides in the Richard J. John of, J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego, California, where he will remain for the rest of his natural-born life. Which is kind of crazy when you think that she was really kind of the ringleader of the big problems that were happening here. I mean, yeah. you know, it's not fair, and it sounds like you you know, you know, kind of nailed it early on, Darren. He seemed very brainwashed by what his mother was up to. So. I think that's what it is. Yeah. I think that's just what it is. Yeah. yeah, really upsetting. Well, let us know what you guys thought about this week's episode at Jay Thrasher and Carpe Darren. Do you think the mother, you know, tell us what you think about the mother-son duo here because it's kind of disturbing. Maybe we should have saved this for Mother's Day, come to think of it. But. Definitely. My mom would have appreciated <laughs> yeah, that Yeah, that's true. Sure. Could you see Absolutely. you and your mom getting into this kind of uh, trouble and the... No, no, not too much. I mean, yeah. it's the mess. You know, my mom just That's, wouldn't want to deal with all the... Yeah. She doesn't want to deal with the mess. Yeah. And Hoboken, and please. Hoboken, please. And no Trump one's... Tower for cookies and pastries. <laughs> I don't see us doing that at all. Yeah. But uh, yeah, let us know what you guys think. John, we have to end on a positive note yes. though, with some listener shout outs. Why don't you take the first one? Yeah, I wanted to give a shout out to my buddy Jorge, who just went through some shoulder surgery. And Ooh. unfortunately, he was listening to last week's episode about the angel of death who was killing people with medicine in their IVs. Oh, Colin. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And had his own connection to the case, actually, having lived nearby uh, that particular part of the country. Luckily, Darren, I can report that Jorge made it out of his surgery unscathed and is home recovering now. And we just wanted to wish you, uh, wish you well and a very fast recovery so that you can get yes. back to, frankly, picking up your phone and listening to our show on the podcast app. That's pretty much. That's like what we watching. Want. That's like being on a plane and then watching a plane oh crash movie, Don't like watching even... Castaway or Airplane. So I Final hear you, Jorge, and I'm j yeah, and I'm just glad you're okay. Yeah. Uh, da Danielle in our Facebook group, I love this one. Also had a connection to last week's episode. She wrote, "I just listened to the Angel of Death episode and have so many connections to this case, just like me. Mm -hmm. I was born at Mountainside Hospital, May of 1988. So." You were born basically in like Montclair, New Jersey, uh, in the month and year that I was born, Danielle. I remember this from when I was a kid and hearing about it on the news. It was so scary. 
Danielle, like, when's your birthday? Gotta, like, that's what I want to know. Yeah. I want to know what the hell the deal is. Like, that's, maybe you guys were being born in, like, rooms next to each other for all you know, you know? Well, I was born in Englewood, but still, oh, I right, know right. Mountainside, but you know? Still, um, still. Still. I have to read this Patreon response, which I really loved, um, from this woman, Candice. She wrote, she wrote on our Patreon, which we're going to be reading more of exclusively, but she said, Darren, you have ruined... <laughs> And I loved it. Ruined my life. Here's how. <laughs> Since you're a circle watcher, you will know why season five led me to Big Brother. I thought, nah, I watch reality TV. I watch enough reality TV. Reality TV. I cannot start with Big Brother. But I remember that Darren had said she loves it, and I truly believe anything you tell me. <laughs> so now I'm three seasons deep in Big Brother, and I can't stop watching it. Please don't suggest any more incredibly addictive shows in the future, because I won't learn from this mistake, and I will keep watching anything you tell me to watch. Nice. Well, look at your I, influence Candace, over here. The power that I have over you. I've got so many recommendations for you. I'm about to root your life even more. It is going to be incredible. Thank you for paying yeah. more attention to me than John ever yeah, does. Yeah, Candace, say. happy watching. I mean, I already told her to watch the Traders on Peacock because it had Big Brother people. It had Survivor people. Yeah. There's a lot, John. There's a lot. Well, going listen, on. I only can um, offer Marvel or tennis. We know I don't really watch anything else besides Aust- that. Australian Open's happening. That's right. Did it is end? happening. Nope. Still happening. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And who's like Djokovic who's like is still around. A lot of the people that were favored to win aren't. Any females I know? Coco Golf. Coco Golf just lost. Um oh. yeah. Naomi? She's not playing. She's pregnant. Naomi Osaka. Naomi That's Osaka's right. pregnant. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Let's tune How in. old is she? 25 or something like that. Wow. Yeah, really Crazy. young. Yeah, yeah. But Damn, anyways, all right. We'll save that for an NMR, by the way. Well, like we mentioned at the top of the show, we have brand new Patreon perks, including exclusive merchandise like a sussy radish sticker. And now for the first time ever, video podcasts exclusively mm-hmm. for sussy radishes. It's really exciting. Your patronage helps keep the lights on. And our show running. So thank you guys, no matter how much you've contributed. By the way, you can also save, I think it's like 15% if you subscribe annually. Yeah, so sign up for a year and save even more money and really help our show. All links to Patreon can be found in our show notes. Or you can just go right to patreon.com slash shaken and disturbed, all one word. And of course, we have to thank our fearless leader and uh, just lovely all-around good person friends. We have to thank Megan. So one, two, three, say it with me. Thanks, Thanks Megan. Megan. And guys, John, happy birthday again. You're going to be recapping you. that on next week's NMR. But yeah. yes, everyone, definitely join Patreon because we're going to be way more active on there than ever before. That's so right. get your exclusivity there and we'll see you guys next week see for another you. case. All right, bye. Bye.